On behalf of this week's sponsor, I wanted to tell you about the amazing work that Deliveroo and the Trussell Trust have been doing together to support people facing hardships across the UK. To date, Deliveroo and its customers have helped provide over 2 million meals to people through the app and their Roundup and Donate feature, as well as helping to fund vital wraparound services provided by food banks. Deliveroo have also pledged to increase this number to 4 million meals globally. Any Deliveroo customer anywhere in the UK can add their support, and it's so easy to do too. You simply choose to round up your order to the nearest pound when you place it on the app on the checkout page. If every customer who used Deliveroo, and there are millions every month, rounded up just 10p on one order, the impact would be enormous. Times are hard right now and a lot of people are struggling to afford the essentials, leading to food banks needing to support more people than ever before. So this provision of meals really is crucial to so many people. The money also goes to supporting the food banks with financial support in the form of advice on debts and benefits, as well as connections, which will hopefully end the need for food banks and lift people out of poverty long term. A small donation in this very simple way really can make a huge difference. If you can, consider rounding up your next order on Deliveroo. You can give as little or as much as you like. Find out more at DeliveroofullLife.com. I'll pop the link in the show notes. Thank you very much to Deliveroo. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. So the saying goes, you should never meet your heroes. But a few weeks ago, I got to meet one of my food heroes and I can confirm she's even better in real life. I've admired Diana Henry's work for as long as I can remember. I love her writing, I love her recipes, and I hadn't really heard that many interviews that she's done. She's so busy with work, I think she just doesn't do that many. So I felt very, very lucky to get the time to sit down with her and talk. She's been on my dream list of guests ever since I started the podcast. So this really was a very special moment for me personally. I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I know a lot of you feel the same way about Diana as I do. If you follow me on Instagram, you will know that I recently launched a newsletter. It's called Dinner Tonight. It's one weekly newsletter that you'll get every Sunday with one delicious, easy, quick recipe that you can make for a weeknight dinner. A newsletter, yes, of course, but in my mind, it's actually more like a serialized cookbook. I've worked as a chef and recipe developer for well over a decade now, and I really wanted a way of sharing the kind of food that I actually cook at home. Food that's quick, it's easy, delicious, a kind of quick fix after a long day, if you will, because I think those are the kind of recipes that we all need the most. No more flicking through cookbooks or scrolling the internet trying to find something that you could easily cook for supper. I really wanted to help. And so if that sounds like something that you would like, head to www.dinnertonight.substack.com 
www.thelovelyfriendship.com. And you can sign up there. You can pop me an email or an Instagram DM with your email address, and I will personally add you to the list. I'm so, so excited about the newsletter. It feels like a real chance to build a little community and talk exclusively to the people who choose to sign up. So I really hope to see you there. Now, without further ado, here are Diana's Desert Island Dishes. My guest today is Diana Henry. Diana is a multi-award winning food writer, journalist, broadcaster and cookbook author. She is a Telegraph's much loved cookery writer. After a career as a TV producer working for both the BBC and Channel 4, Diana started writing about food after she had her first child. Through her work with The Telegraph, she shares recipes each week for everything from speedy family dinners to special menus that friends will remember for months. She's also a regular broadcaster on BBC Radio 4 and her journalism and recipe books, including Simple and How to Eat a Peach, are multi-award winning. A mother of two sons, Diana can satisfy even the fussiest of eaters. Described as one of the most prolific recipe writers of a generation, but also one of the most beloved, Yotam Ottolenghi has said of her work, everything Diana Henry cooks, I want to eat. Whilst Nigella Lawson has said she can write a recipe for cucumbers with radishes, cherries and rose petals. And with another writer, you wouldn't trust it. But with Diana, you want to give it a go because it feels both safe and inspiring. Welcome, Diana. I think it's very funny that she she couldn't quite get that by reading the title because I think <laughs> that seems obvious to me that that would work. Sometimes I look, I've got to be honest, at Yotams and I and I love Yotam. But you know, you, you really don't need that. How many layers are you going to have mm. here? But he's he's a kind of like flavour builder. But you're right, his recipes are the kind of thing where you need a lot of ingredients. And I guess your speciality is using very few things in the best possible way. I and... really feel for home cooks, which mm. is basically what I am. And um, I hadn't really realised, I don't think until I had a child, how kind of tough it is if you have a child and you're trying to cook. Because um, basically, Ted, my first child, he was kind of, he cried all the time. So I had to carry him on one hip. And that was the way he would be quiet. But then I had only one hand left to cook with. <laughs> so I did that whole bung things in the oven that was, was in Cook Simple, one of my early books. That was completely because of him. It was a kind of style of cooking that I just had to kind of like develop because yeah. it was the only thing that worked. Yeah. I mean, even I didn't even make puddings either. I just shoved a sort of stone fruit with some creme de cassis and maybe a little bit of apple juice, whatever, into the oven. And I was kind of amazed at what came out <laughs> because you try that way of cooking and you think, I haven't really done anything very much. I mean, with quite a lot of my chicken recipes, it's chicken thighs done some way with incredible, like very different ingredients alongside it. But the first time I did it, and it was from, it was Antonio Colicci who told me about it. He did that thing of putting chicken thighs in the oven with red onions, waxy potatoes, and a bit of olive oil, whole cloves of garlic, and um, salt on the skin of the chicken. Yeah. And you can't you go wrong. You didn't, you didn't brine anything. You just stuck it in there. Mm. And I still live on that, basically. That kind of food. It's real Wednesday night food. Mm. Well, I don't want to embarrass you, Diana, but you have been one of the most highly requested guests we've ever had. on Seriously? Yep. I never 
think anybody knows who I am because I don't do telly and I don't really want, I don't want to be famous actually, um, except, except to sell books. But you're kind of what everyone always says that the best kind of famous person is actually someone like the drummer in Coldplay who's very successful, <laughs> but you wouldn't recognize him walking down the street. And Diana, I think that's you. That's perfect. That's good. To th- I like that kind of like, yeah. You've said that you're the kind of person who wishes there were 48 hours in every day instead of 24 as totally. there's just always so much more to learn. Have you always been that way? I'm incredibly enthusiastic. Um, and I was like that from being a child. That thing that they talk about flow, that kind of like psychological state. I think I was in that almost most of the time because I read hugely. And then I loved making things, paper flowers, papier-mâché. We had those, we made our own little kind of like, you know, dolls that you pin clothes on, um, you know, paper dolls. I was always making things. Some nights, even as kind of like an eight-year-old, I would feel exhausted at the end of the day. And I think it was because I just, I did so much. And because I put such a lot of kind of energy into things. But I also suffer from depression. So it seems like that is, oh, this bit. I mean, I haven't suffered badly for years now. But it's kind of odd because there's that incredibly life-loving, optimistic enthusiast. And then I can have my very bleak times. Mm, Day and night. I mean, now we're kind of in a place where, again, I haven't had an episode for years. So that's good. And it's very hard to remember how bad it is when you're well, funny enough. And sometimes you have to do that. If you have a friend who is going through a really terrible patch and they're actually clinically depressed and they just have to have use drugs to get themselves out of that, um, I have to work at it to think what it actually feels like. Mm. But when it's at its worst, it's really dreadful. So Diana, you grew up in Northern Ireland, one of four children with grandparents who were farmers. And you say that family life was entrenched in the agricultural world. Yeah. So let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, this is, and you might expect this, it's Irish stew. <gasps> it was a mainstay. It wasn't the only thing. When it was the right season, we also had this um, dish called champ, which is very Northern Irish. So it's incredibly bad for you. I mean, it's just, it's mash, really good mash. When you have to infuse the milk that you're going to add to it with spring onions, and then that gets added and loads of butter gets added. But I think of it now and I can think, my God, when you think about everybody's focus now on health, we sat down to a plate full of this with your spoon, you make it kind of hollow in the middle, and you put more butter in there. Oh. So every kind of like <laughs> mouthful was kind of like, it was basically spring onions, mash and butter. I mean, how could that not be delicious? I mean, heaven. Well, everything tastes better with butter. It that, does. It, it is, unfortunately, that's true. Yeah, that's my life motto. But so Irish tea was quite regular. I mean, it's not a dish I've ever become bored of. And we had it at school as well, you know, in the canteen. This stuff was pretty awful, but it was good when you saw that there was Irish tea on the board because they kind of like they cooked it so that it was quite a lot more um lumpy they didn't kind of like it was quite i don't want to say watery but it was more liquid than my mum's was okay but it's it's got great sweetness because it's you you use um a very very cheap cut of lamb to make it i mean i couldn't even find this when i came to england i was going into butchers and saying do you have any scrag end and they'd be like what and I thought, what kind of country is this? <laughs> Seriously, when you couldn't get any cut you wanted in a butcher's, because we were used to that at home. Mm. Uh, but I love the smell of it. I love the carrots. 
I love the overall kind of like sweet savor because because the carrots make it sweet and so does the lamb, obviously. But it is complete solace to me because it's a very simple dish and it just got a history in my life. And I think those things are always important. Mm. Is Irish stew different to mince potatoes, carrots and onions? Oh, yeah, that's the other thing we eat a lot of. Okay. Because that's a kind of Scottish mince and tatties. Mm. No, but I love that as well. But that has to be really well cooked. Funny enough, you think it's kind of an easy thing, but most people put the mince in a pan that's not hot enough so it never gets any colour. So oh. at the end... What was, this is this grey sludge. I didn't want to eat that. <laughs> the first time I was pregnant, actually, that was absolutely what I craved. Minced potatoes and onions and, pota- and potatoes. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. I read that and I thought there's something so lovely and full circle about the beginning of new life being nurtured by the yes. food of your childhood. I know. And fruit was the other thing that I really wanted. I love fruit, especially summer fruit. And um, for some reason, soy sauce. I have no idea where that came from. I ate a lot of ice, which... Um, Did you? Yeah, and lots of bread. <laughs> lots of, yeah, I think you, I think pregnancy does make you go for the carbs. There's no doubt about that. You describe as a child watching from the stairs as your parents entertain guests at dinner parties and you used to borrow your mother's cordon bleu books and stay up late into the night until your eyes were sore. You say that... I could see that with food, you created a world. You entertained and you created atmosphere. So you obviously had an interest and you learned from a really young age that food is so much more than food. Yeah. What does food mean to you now? It's just much more than something to eat. I think that it's about eating together. I think it's about celebration. My two sons and I, we still sit around the table and one of their favourite things is just us sitting at the table and, and eating. COVID, we had a great time because um, apart from the fact that Ted had to go out and do all the kind of like hunting for flour and whatever else I needed. <laughs> we just, we were at that table kind of twice a day then because we had lunch and dinner. And I just, it's a place where you look at people and you converse and it's just, it's kind of very close. You can't not talk. You can't not even reveal some things about yourself or actually think about your day, which a lot of people just don't. They just mm. have their day. Um, and I also think, and this was from a very early age, I think you you travel with it. I mean, I grew up in Northern Ireland. We only went to Dublin. I was 16 before I actually went to a foreign country. We just didn't go many places. But food I could see was somewhere that took you to another country. I mean, those Cord and Blur books, I just complete was this part work that came out, I think it was the late 60s, actually. And my mum had it all in these boxes. But there was one cover I particularly loved when it was these eggs had been decorated, they'd been painted, they looked beautiful, and they were in a nest of feathers. And I thought, Imagine if you did your eggs like that at Easter. I mean, isn't that gorgeous? So um, I quite often I would not go through them in order. I would I would go to the ones I like the look of best on the cover and then I would go in there. Yeah, always judge a book by a cover. Yes. The second desert island dish, what's the first dish that you learned to cook? The first thing I learned to cook wasn't a dish. It was a component. Mm. The first thing my mother actually taught me how to cook was bechamel sauce. Ooh. Because if you can make if you can make that, then you can make all the offshoots. I mean, nobody cares about bechamel sauce now, really. Because, Do you think that's true? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of like you use it for making pies and things. But I think that whole thing about flour thickened sauces has kind of gone out, except I think people still really like them. Well, and also you need it for lasagna. Mm. Um, so there are things that helps you with cauliflower cheese, lasagna, and I think that's why my mum taught me that because you could, if you could do that, you could do. 
a meal because the other things you like bacon and cabbage or like gammon and cabbage and potatoes and you had your parsley sauce Ooh, I mean yeah. that that was kind of like that was a meal yeah oh it's the base of so many good things isn't yeah it? and she taught me to make pastry as well that was another thing very early on how and old do you think you were when you were doing that I think I was nine. Oh wow but before that, I kind of, um, I really liked baking because my mum did a lot of it. And I could see that, you know, you kind of go through this process and then look, ta-da, something that really pleases other people and looks wonderful. The first things were things like fairy cakes, melting moments, peppermint creams yes. and coconut ice. Do you remember coconut mm. ice? Oh, that was really bad for you again. Yeah. But... Yeah, I kind of like, those are the very first things I, I yeah. did. I must have been sort of six or seven, really. I mean, I think a peppermint cream is just icing sugar, isn't yeah, it? That's it. <laughs> You've said that your culinary epiphany came at the age of 15 when you went to a small town in France as an exchange student. I think that was, as you have said, the first time that you'd been outside of Northern Ireland. Tell us what was so important about that trip. Well, we did like food at home and my mum was and is a very, very good cook. So she taught from scratch every day. So I was used to good food and we all, in a kind of way, took it for granted. Um, and when I went to France, they talked about food all the time. I mean, you'd only just had your breakfast when they wanted to talk about what you're going to do for lunch. <laughs> and then during lunch, of course, you talked about supper. And it was a very kind of special trip. The first kind of few days of it were spent in Dreux, which is near Paris. And then we went to this place called La Montemblaisy, near where Charles de Gaulle is actually buried. And it was kind of like a very basic brick cottage, stone cottage, which had been put up by people that I was staying with. And the man, Jean, his grandma lived just across the way. I mean, there weren't roads here. By the time you got down to where this was, they were just kind of like tracks. But there were deliveries all the time. And um, like a man came in a van and would... They would buy peaches by the tray. So it was the kind of abundance and the cheapness and what they sort of expected as well. And in Grandma's garden across the road, she had she had fantastic lettuce and she also had all sorts of herbs. So that's the first place I learned how to make a vinaigrette. And Clotilde, who was my kind of like partner in all this, she showed me how to do it. And I think that a green salad a well-dressed green salad. And I, I just had one this week, actually, in this new restaurant on Gooch Street. And it, it was like a proper green salad that you get in France uh, with really good bread, because the bread's important as well. Those two things on their own, I think, are just sublime. Sometimes I think I could live on that for the rest of my life. And then I think, but I need to put the cheeses in as well. Oh, yeah. I can't lose the cheeses. No. <laughs> they just had a great attitude to life. I thought I thought it was incredibly... I mean, they weren't well off at all. They lived in a tiny flat in Drew. It was very civilised. It seemed to be a very good approach to life. Mm. And I came back wanting to make proper vinaigrette, not with sunflower oil, but with um, olive oil, which we'd only basically used if we had earaches and it stayed in the cross and blackwell oh, really? stayed in the bathroom cabinet people did that those days you warmed the olive oil and you poured it into your ear and so no was one aching. was eating it well they were using sunflower oil which kind of like it makes a kind of like basic thing but the flavor of yeah olive mm. oil is better yeah but I came home wanting to kind of like making all these demands and then I, I wanted to make quiche <laughs> and then I wanted to make French tarts. I can remember the day that I made that. I found a Katie Stewart recipe. I used to pull things out of magazines all the time, food things, and she made a glazed strawberry tart and I just did 
everything that she said. I mean, I could hardly believe it. I'd made it. Because there's those things that you think are very difficult, like French patisserie, if you're making a tart, you've just got, you know, you've got the components, you've got the pastry, you've got the pastry cream, and you've got the fruit, and then you can glaze it or not as you want. So if you can do each component well, you can pull it off. Mm. And um, I, it was fantastic to be able to make stuff that looked like this. Yeah, it's such an exciting feeling when you discover that. Oh, God, it's brilliant. And I still get that about cooking a new sort of dish or something that I've come back from holiday with an idea that I'm going to do that or whatever. I mean, I've just been to Poland, so I've got to make pierogi now. I mean, I have oh, I've yes. got to. And that probably isn't easy. I'd say you need very nimble fingers and to get it kind of like thin enough. But I just, yeah, I love those in Poland. I They're think great. that's the kind of thing to get them perfect is probably quite difficult. But to get them good enough that you'd be pleased is probably quite yeah. straightforward. Yeah, there are some things that I'm not very good at. And every so often I think... I got I got to do this till I can perfect this, yeah. and then kind of like normal life takes over. Yeah, <laughs> like my my puff pastry is not very good. Yeah, I I don't know whether this is controversial, but I think life's too short to make puff pastry. Um, I think there's there's incredibly good stuff that you can buy. Yeah. So um, if you, there's a, I think there's a there's a company down I think it's in Dorset, and they make an old butter puff pastry, which is really delicious. So you can, and also even at cookery school they said. If it's made with machines, you will always get a more of a rise yeah. because you can't make it that uh, well. I remember finishing cookery school and just spending like days and days making my own puff pastry. Oh. It would take me like three days to make like a chicken pie. It no, was such a I, I can't practice, practice and I still, but cooking isn't funny enough. It's about another thing apart from some of the takes you places. It's challenges, challenges mm. to make things. Yeah. Everybody can cook. I really think that. But I think they also have to be able to get into that mindset where you want to make something and at the end, whatever it is, and at the end you just want to say, look at that. Because in some ways, I kind of like, I sound immodest because sometimes I bring food to the table and I give them to friends and they go, my God, it's fantastic. And I say, isn't it? Because <laughs> food cooks by itself, especially those things that you that you stick in the oven. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, all I need are good ingredients and a little bit of know-how to know what things will work together. And then it's heat. Mm. And it's extraordinary what happens with heat. Yeah. Diana, let's talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? A dish that I really love and didn't, I didn't actually discover this till I was 50. Mm. I went to Piedmont for my 50th birthday. I'd always wanted to go there because it's that fantastically wooded. I'm a very kind of north person. Like, South Italy is great, wonderful, but, you know, I just burn up. And I like, love snowy places, and I like places that are really good in the autumn. So I went to Piedmont, and I never kind of like, I never really thought, well, I had kind of like considered truffles, and actually thought, yeah, but they're so expensive. I kind of am uncomfortable about eating things that not everybody can eat mm. in a way. Okay. Foie gras, truffles, all the rest of it. And I also thought they just might be raved about because they were expensive, that it was more to do with that than the than the taste. Um, so I went hunting with this dog called Luna and my boyfriend, who I was with at the time, and um, we did find a truffle. I'm sure these things are set up. It's probably not real at all. And we stayed in, in a hotel that was actually owned and run, and she was the cook as well by a Californian. But that night when we came back, 
they will use your truffle, or at least part of your truffle that you that you've got <laughs> in a dish for you. So there's a thing called in Piedmont. There's well, it's like tagliolini. So it's kind of pretty much it's not as thin as angel's hair at all, and not as thin as spaghetti, but a kind of like flat, slim noodle, mm. um, pasta shape, and it's called tajarin. I don't know if that's right, but it's said. Sounds perfect. It doesn't look Italian when you write it down. But it's Piedmont <laughs> um, dialect, I think. But so I had that that night with just melted butter and the truffles shaved on it. And I can't tell you how many more times I went out to have truffles in that short break. I just wanted it everywhere because everybody thinks, oh, yeah, they're kind of like they taste of mushrooms. They also taste of cheese. Mm. So you get that kind of thing together. It, it's so umami. I mean, it's just, if you love cheese, you like mushrooms, you like wild mushrooms, this is like, this is just as good as it gets. Yeah. And um, I think that is one of my absolute favourite dishes. Yeah. I love that. I do anything for truffle. Really? <laughs> yes. Black truffles aren't so great, though, I don't think. Oh, I, I have love, to have the white I ones. I love them. I I've love only them. been back twice since, and that's not enough. <laughs> no, it's it needs not. To, no, it needs to be a twice a year thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like to go just basically every autumn for yeah, my birthday. Maybe move I don't there. know why people don't actually suggest that. If I was thinking I'm going to move to Italy, that is exactly where I would live. But I know what you mean, though. There are some things where it's definitely the emperor's new clothes, and it's just because it's expensive and they yeah. spent a lot of money and they just can't bring themselves to say that it's not good. Oh, no, I, I they totally want to show off. Them. But I totally believe no, them. truffles are not in that category. Caviar too, I'm are amazing. Caviar's amazing. Yeah. I just, oh, my God. Those little pops of saltiness. I mean, I even buy the kind of like, no, I don't buy lumpfish roe, but I do buy ketta, which is kind of salmon roe, the, the way they burst on mm. your tongue. And if you have that, I, I make sweet corn pancakes, little kind of like pancakes that you have with creme fraiche yes. and uh, some dill and smoked salmon. It has to be really good smoked salmon. And those on top. This is how long I think about these things, how patient I am. I read about um particular chef it's called Weinstein and I read about her probably in a Sunday supplement I mean I sort of like lived life vicariously in Northern Ireland through Sunday supplements we weren't going to any of these places but I read about her and then I actually went there on my honeymoon it was mm. the first place I went and actually I had that dish except that night they were serving it with smoked lobster Chimney smoked lobster. Can't be angry about that. No, it was just kind of great. So, and I still make that dish mm. and I put it in How to Eat a Peach because it was just, yeah, it was a very kind of like, it's ridiculous how important these things become to you. Yeah. But they just do and you cook them endlessly mm. and that makes them special. Mm. So after graduating from Oxford, where you studied English, you got a postgrad degree in journalism, and then you began a career as a television producer. And it was in 1998 that you had your first son, Ted, and the exhilaration that you once felt working these 12 hours, six days a week disappeared. So you enrolled at Leeds Cookery School. And after your youngest son was born, that was when you began writing food full time. Oh, the last thing I actually did was I was working on a series with Gerald Scarf. It was about different kind of groups of people and part of it was that he he kind of like did his cartoons and we went out and we interviewed people and all the rest of it. And at the end of that year, I had a nervous breakdown. I was 28. I had a breakdown. Then I kind of like got better and got better pretty quickly. But I just thought, I well, it seemed like the right time to have time off. Mm. And it also seemed like a kind of like, 
break where you thought, this is the thing I have loved for years is cooking. Mm. So why don't I give myself a gift of that? Yeah. And I went so to So had Leeds. that been in your mind when you were Well, working? I would I would never have given up television if something bad hadn't happened at that time. And I went back to it after I did the year at Leeds. Um, but I think something significant had happened for me to be that generous to myself, to be honest with mm. you. It was one of the best years of my life. I absolutely loved it. It was great. Because you were learning. I couldn't really believe I was back in this place where I was learning all the time. And um, then you just kind of like go home with kind of little boxes of food. And everybody else was keen as well, of course, because that's why they were there, because it wasn't cheap. Yeah. Um, but then I went back to television after that. And, yeah, stayed for quite a more number of years. Okay. And then I had Ted at um, 35 and I went back to do, I had been working on a series about garden design in the 20th century. So it was about kind of like you going to places like new towns outside London to kind of look at how gardens had changed then. I was with a woman on a Friday afternoon, an elderly woman. And things I loved about, loved about television is you got to meet loads of people and you got to really connect with them because you talked to them. And I thought that was something I was... I don't know if you can really think that you're good at that, but I really enjoyed it. And I think I did make really good kind of like links with people. But I was listening to her talking about kind of what she was doing after the war in her garden. And I really couldn't have cared less. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> seriously. It was just like, I'm not interested anymore. And if I'm not interested, I can't do this very well. <laughs> Isn't that awful? But it was also kind of like, because I basically wanted to get back to Ted. I wanted mm. to go home. Basically, if I put it in a nutshell, I think if I hadn't been able to be at home with Ted and look after him, I think I was going to lose my mind. Mm. But also the thing is, I didn't want to do it all day long every day because I would have lost my mind that way as well. Yeah. So I had but to it, find a compromise. But it does a weird thing to you when you have children because, yeah, like you have to be really enjoying the thing, taking you away from them. Exactly. Otherwise, what's the point? But so I thought on the Monday I went in and left, on the Friday, a publisher called me about writing that book for Antonio Carluccio. Mm. And it was just like, oh, this is great. So I could do that at home, go and see him once a week, get all the kind of material that I could lay my hands on about Italy and Italian vegetables. And I got someone who came just three days a week with her child. And so I was there all the time. And I thought, this is a good idea. Maybe this is what I should do. And kind of like... Writing seemed obvious and writing about food, if I'm honest, seemed to be the kind of thing that might work the quickest. I mean, okay. yeah, I think it's difficult to just suddenly be a freelance writer of whatever kind of human interest stories and stuff like that. I think you have to bang on a lot of doors. And I just I did know so much about food, actually, which had just been absorbed by, you know, my growing up and then that year at Leeds. Um, it it wasn't going to be diff it wasn't going to be difficult, I suppose. Yeah. And there wasn't necessarily an end to it. I mean, I didn't have any huge ambition. I just wanted to make enough money to kind of to pay the the girl who's coming with her child um, three days a week. And so, yeah, that was it. Everything everything changed mm. in a week. And your first cookbook, the iconic Crazy Water Pickled Lemons, that came in 2002. And the title alone captured people's imaginations. Tell us a little bit about that. I'd had this idea for writing this book, but it was just kind of like, I don't write books, so that's not going to happen. But I had this Nag Nagi Mafu's novel 
about the set in Egypt about a family. It was the first part of the Cairo trilogy that he wrote. And there was there was a fantastic description of breakfast. And they had beans, they had eggs. I think they had preserved lemons at that meal, or maybe it was another meal. And sometimes it was called pickled lemons, as far as I could see. And I thought, what are these things? And what do they taste like? And I just like the idea of all these trays being laid out with all of these different things. And then they all ate together. And the other thing I knew about, because I don't know where I stumbled upon that, but reading about kind of like the Amalfi Coast, I think, this dish called Crazy Water, which when you went and found out what it was, it was quite ordinary. It was just poached fish in a kind of broth with or without chili and kind of like different herbs and stuff. And I thought, what is that? But I got very interested in dishes that either had incredible names Mm. or were new to me or worked in a kind of like strange way. I mean, in that book, there's an apple alioli. So it's a Spanish aioli, but it's made with quinces. So you base it on quince puree. And it's an extraordinary thing. So I had a lot of those dishes in my head that actually went in the book. So I think it was very right for me because I think I'm just constantly sort of curious. But the reason why Crazy Water came about is that um, a publisher phoned me up and she knew I had done um, Antonio's book. So I assumed she was meeting me in order to kind of like see if I could ghostwrite books for other people. But it wasn't quite clear that she wanted to talk to me about that. And at the end of the kind of like interview with her, I said, you know, there's a book I'd really like to write. And um, she asked me what it was. I had the name. I could actually talk to her about what it was like, what the feel of it was, what it would even kind of like, what the photography would be like. And I really wanted this sense of otherworldliness, kind Mm. of enchantment. So she more or less bought it on the spot. Wow. I mean, and I couldn't, I didn't even have a mobile. I went to find a call box so I could phone my mum. And I said, I think I've just had a book commissioned. And then I went, ho- I went home and I did, it's the kind of thing that you do for television. They're, I mean, in publishing, they call them pictures, but I used to call them treatments. So I went, I kind of like wrote the whole thing. I'd about what this book was about, who it would appeal to. And I did a mood board and I took it into them. And in a way, the book already existed. Yeah, because how amazing. Because there it kind of was. And I still do that. So I wrote it and I wrote it kind of like basically in the evenings when I wasn't looking after Ted and um, waited for it to come out. And it was kind of, it was the most glorious time. And nobody told me what it should be like and nobody stopped me doing anything. And everybody just let me run with it. Yeah. And that is my thing. And I find that I love writing just so much. Mm. And I think I enjoy the process more. We're on to the fourth most important question of the day, Diana. What is your favourite sandwich? No, this is hard. This is hard because I like from the kind of like quite sophisticated to the absolutely scornful. If you tell anybody that you like a coronation chicken sandwich, which is no longer available in Pret or an M&S. Everybody seems to have oh, discontinued it. Even in an M- M&S? I haven't seen it for, I haven't seen it for months. Hmm. Maybe even years. But, so that's at one end. We'll, we'll start a campaign. <laughs> yes, do please. M&S, are you listening? Um, and at the other end, what is lovely, because it, it's so simple, and it reminds me of France, is the jambon beurre. That's, mm. So it's in, you know, your little crusty roll with your butter, your cornichon, and your ham. That is just a great mixture. 
because the saltiness of the cornichon with the kind of like sweet fattiness of the lamb and then you get this great crunch as well. I think it's, oh, the butter, the butter, let's not forget the butter. Um, I still, It's delicious. Is that something that you would make at home? If I had good ham, mm. yeah, I would. I basically, although what I eat most lunchtimes, and it's Marina O'Loughlin, the restaurant critic, she's exactly the same. Cheese on toast. Yeah. We can never resist cheese on toast. Why is it so good? Do you have a secret to yours? Oh, God, no. Well, I kind of, if I do it specially, if I do something like there's um, Scott's Rarebit, which is in a very old book by this woman, Marion McNeil, and that's with, you know, you make the little sauce as you do with Rarebit, but it's got whiskey in it mm. or porter, or you can actually add both. And when I do those, although, honestly, that's almost too cheesy because... <laughs> Diana, there's no like, such thing. I know, there really isn't. <laughs> So I make that sometimes, but basically, honestly, it's toast and cheddar. Mm. You're not melting the cheese. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm, 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 not, I'm into no, that. No, I'm not. Because I've got the time. Yeah. Some I days it gets to four o'clock and I haven't actually had lunch at all. Yeah. But this is, I w- wouldn't advise this as a way of life. <laughs> you should all be having your grain bowls, basically. <laughs> Producing the number of recipes that you do every month, like what do your weeks look like? Do you have a way of structuring them or a process to your your writing or your way of working? I know, and it's taken me 20 years to get this right. I, sh- I need to either have a cooking day or a writing day. When you try to mix them up, you're in a different place. Oh God, I love it actually when it's a writing day because I just get and I get into my, and I open my laptop and it's like, oh, it's like... Everything I've ever written is on this laptop. I mean, it's just so full of stuff. Um, Diana, do you back up? Yes, I do back up. (laughs) I back up. My sons have sorted that out for me. And I just feel like myself. The place I most feel like myself is at a desk or my kitchen table. And the other place is standing at the cooker and sautéing an onion. Mm. Those things go really far back with me. They're sort of at the core of myself. It seems very unfair that you get to be so good at creating recipes, but also writing about food. You've said that there are some people who chase an idea rather than a dish. And I don't think that usually works because deliciousness is just too important. What exactly did you mean by that? I I don't find it difficult to come up with dishes at all. And I have no idea why, except that If you start thinking about that kind of thing when you're seven, you know, what goes with what? And then I've also said in the past, actually, I think that reading cookbooks also kind of educates you, not because you're going to make specific dishes, but I think you learn over time what things go together. Because you, if you see them in a recipe or you go traveling, that's another thing. You kind of think, okay, those both work. And you can imagine other dishes in which they might work together. So I think in my head there's always a kind of like layer thing going on. When it's for the Telegraph, I just suggest themes and then kind of like I send them lists of things and they kind of like go with whatever they like, but it's my idea. Because I did a lot of stuff over years for House and Garden Mm. and they would give me themes. So it's kind of like we want you to do six dishes, starter, main course and a pudding, and they all have to have roots, root vegetables in them. So then you have to start this thing. And it's quite good. I didn't I didn't know this was a thing until my children said, that's a mind map. Oh, yeah. So what you do is you kind of like, if you've got something, say you put rhubarb in there, and then you come up, you get kind of like things all the way off this of what it will go with. So many of those are kind of classics. You'll put, you know, um, almonds down, orange down, ginger, da-da-da-da. But then at the other side, 
you think of things that you think it might not go with, but then you can find maybe that it does. Mm. So you do all this kind of thing. And I love this game. I mean, I love it if somebody gives me just the kind of ingredient. I think, okay, let's work this to death in an interesting way. We're on to the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Roast chicken. <gasps> and that is a favourite dish. I mean, I love it. And so do my kids. I mean, apart from one stage when I got divorced, when they went to the dad's every other weekend, he would do roast chicken on the Sunday lunch and they started to call it divorced chicken. Oh, no. So <laughs> oh, um, no. it kind of like fell off its perch for a while. <laughs> and then Did he do it differently? It. No idea. <laughs> No, he's so a yeah, no, divorced no chicken. Idea. Okay, um, but, but it's I back can, on the back in the good books. But I kind of like I kind of like the just roasted with a green salad that's got a good mustard dressing and like potatoes and maybe another vegetable. Or my kids really love um, roast chicken stuffed with root vegetables and. Uh, Bread sauce. Mm. And they like that in the autumn winter, even though it's not Christmas. I have yeah. to make that. And it's really, when you do something they really love like that, it's, it's great. So, Diana, you were very ill a few years ago, which you wrote about very movingly. And I hope this isn't too personal, but I found this extract very moving in light of that knowledge. You wrote, I still travel to far-flung places from my kitchen, but I don't take what's on my doorstep for granted. Most of the recipes use everyday ingredients, but the dishes are far from ordinary. It's natural to undervalue or ignore what we have, but to do so means we miss out on huge riches. Am I reading too much into that to think that being so gravely ill has given you a different perspective on appreciating simple things? Um, I think I sort of have, but I'm fighting a kind of against the tide these days because when I wrote Rose Fig Sugar Snow, I went to places that were cold. I was looking for snow. Mm -hmm. um, that meant north. That meant going to kind of like northern Italy um, and kind of like Scandinavia and places like that. And um, it's all roots. It's beets. It's parsnips, it's apples, pears, and we're kind of like lucky enough to have great summer fruit as well. But apart from the stuff that's imported that grow here, you know, gooseberries, rhubarb, and brown apples and stuff like that. I think, in fact, you can sort of like probably date it back to Elizabeth David's influence and kind of like post-war thinking. Um, people wanted sun. They wanted the south. Mm. They wanted Italy. They wanted Spain. They wanted all of those places. And actually, growing up in Ireland, so did I. Because my great thing then was to kind of like, we could buy pomegranates at Christmas. And these these were kind of like amazing to me. I mean, that fed into um, crazy water pickle lemons. So I think we've had decades of looking at those. Like the Middle Eastern has now become, I mean, tahini is and everything, including places where it shouldn't be. Um, and I want people to look at what we have because it makes sense, because it makes sense in terms of global warming and eating the stuff on your doorstep and supporting local businesses and farmers. So I think I appreciate it all. I think that I have, if this makes sense, come home a bit more in what I cook these days. And I don't know whether that's because I'm older now. I'm not sure. But yeah, definitely illness does make you appreciate the most mundane. Mm. The sixth desert island dish. Diana, what's your go-to dinner party dish? Oh, right, okay. And this was on the go for years. And it's kind of odd because it's actually, it's a roast and people don't generally think of roast for dinner parties. Mm -hmm. But whether it's kind of, you know, on a Saturday night or a Sunday lunch, I absolutely love this dish, which comes from the late Jeremy Round. He mm -hmm. wrote for The Independent. 
And um, I had a book of his, I mean, years and years and years ago. And he marinates the lamb. It's in, I mean, yogurt does amazing things to tenderize meat. And the meat's already tender. But so it's it's yogurt, it's lots of grated garlic. It has actually a tablespoon of um, red wine vinegar in it, broken up bay leaves. I mean, basically, you, you, you kind of like dress it in this and you keep it overnight. Um, and I serve it with a thing which is Turkish, but it's usually presented in a different way. Um, it's called Sultan's Pleasure. Um, and it's basically, listen to this now, bechamel is coming in again. It's basically a bechamel into which you put roasted and pureed aubergines. So it's very sort of delicate, actually, kind of flavour. But that, and, the, and in Turkey, they serve it with kind of like little meatballs or with kind of like a stew, just a cubed lamb. But it, I think it's brilliant with that with yeah. that um, roast. Okay. And you, you you need to kind of play some sweetness of this as well, or I always do. Um, so I serve it with um, roast peppers and roast tomatoes and stuff like that. And it is, it was kind of like, it's been a special dish in my house since I was 24. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that sounds absolutely incredible. And do you normally serve a pudding at your dinner parties? Oh, God, yes. Mm. Yeah, because I kind of like, actually, I like cooking starters and puddings best of all. It's not that I'm not good at great hunks of meat. I kind of like, because I cook a lot of meat. But um, I like the smallness of those and the, the fact that you've got this kind of more... Um, well, in starter, you can really kind of like mix around contrast and stuff like that. And in a pudding, well, I just like puddings. And I usually make fruit puddings. Mm. So do you want to do my favourite pudding? Of course. Okay, this is really difficult too. Because it, there's two things. Okay. And one is apricot tart that's with, you know, almond frangipan and a good pastry. Um, I think that's delicious. I mean, I think that's kind of like, it's the first thing I make in summer, either that or an upside down apricot cake, because I just think, this is it. I love apricots. Um, and the other thing, which is kind of like has been served forever and ever, is summer pudding. Mm, so good. I really love it. I and think I it's kind really of like, underrated. Well, also, well, because I think it's kind of British and you just think, oh, is it? It's kind of like bread and crushed fruit. No. Um, but no, I think it's, it's magic. one of the most delicious things you can eat. But I don't always use the, you know, it's kind of should be... I think it's black currants, red currants, and raspberries are kind of like the classic things to go into it, I think. But I made one last week um, with plums and blackberries and raspberries Ooh. and some slow gin. Ooh. I think a boozy, Ooh. a boozy summer pudding is real. If you don't overdo it, I think it's honest to God, just irresistible. So so irresistible good. so good with lots of cream on the top oh. well on the side on the side on the side yeah <laughs> so good so diana this is going to be a hard question because i read that you have over four thousand cookbooks but on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner what is your most treasured cookbook i'm sorry but i've got to say three because i can't okay. choose between these women <laughs> they're all by women there is um jane grigson's fruit book which i loved when i discovered jane grigson it was just like people write about food like this and Claudia Roden's Middle Eastern food. I see Claudia now. I can't believe that's happened in my life. Because I bought that when I first moved to London. And um, I didn't know about her. Um, and it was just there was a bookshop around the corner from my flat. And um, I just, I remember that day even falling asleep with it on the sofa. And when I woke up, there was just, you know, the streetlights on outside. And um, I was just completely enchanted. And the other book, because I think it's had a massive influence 
was um, the Chez Panisse menu cookbook. Mm. I had a thing about, I mean, I, I didn't get to California until I was 30, but um, I'd read about her in my teens, Alice Waters, because she, you know, she started that place quite early. When I moved to London, it was all Neville cuisine. So everybody, everything was in hexagonal plates and everything was reduced veal stock. And she was suggesting uh, baked garlic with goat's cheese on kind of like sourdough. What the hell was that? And then she would have the audacity to suggest a bowl of cherries for pudding. <laughs> and that was, so, I mean, that was kind of like, revolutionary mm. she spent a lot of time in france and i think that really informed her and as it did me but she applied it to the things that were there so it was kind of like france but with california and of course that created a whole new kind of movement mm. in a way diana we're on to the final seventh desert island dish what's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island oh gravlax <laughs> Ooh. It was one of the first things I made as well as a teenager because we had, in those days, there was great wild salmon. And um, I can't remember how I found out about it, but my mum was always going to cookery classes in the evening, so she might have told me about it. Um, but the idea, too, that you could kind of like just put sugar and salt and dill on these things and you can, like, stick it in for five days, and it's not, it doesn't rot. It kind of, like, really works. But I... Love the flavour as well. If you've got good salmon, I think, mm. and I love Scandinavian food, I really do. So, and I do different versions of that now. I do one with beetroot, and I do a kind of like sort of more Caribbean one. I do that with coriander, brown sugar, rum, that to cure it. Oh wow! Um, and then you can have that with a kind of you can have that with a mango salsa or something. But I kind of like really like just the original. I mean, when I read about it, um, sort of as an adult when I'd left home. In one of those time life books, the one on Scandinavia, it says that you should make gravlax in silence, in stillness, and in shadow. <laughs> and I think that's you concentrate and you, you you know, the thing that you the, the sugar and the salt look like snow. Mm. And then the dill is quite piney. And it just I, I think I think it's just a brilliant dish, but it's not very complicated at all. Mm. It makes itself. Are you going to have a pudding before you go? I might have, and depending on the time of year, but I might have something else that I've made loads. If you're my generation, one of the first things that you learned to do is make pears and red wine. I mean, really, everybody, everybody made that in the 70s. Um, but I do a, a kind of another, another thing where it's less action, less work. Um, I just have the pears and I put them in a gratin dish and um, sugar, marsala, a vanilla pod, and you put it, it's another one that you put it in the oven. And um, I cannot, I mean, honestly, that is my total go-to kind of pudding because it's so, so easy. You can put almonds in it as well. You can put raisins in that plump up and they lie there as well. Mm. Yeah, that would be kind of like, that would be my kind of like very homely pudding mm. that I might have last. That sounds delicious. Well, with that, we're going to cast you off to the island. Diana, thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes. It's been a pleasure. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast if you're listening on iTunes. Uh, but really, wherever you're listening, I think you can subscribe. And if you do, that boosts the show in the charts and it helps others to find it, which is great because it means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can also sign up for the newsletter at dinnertonight.substack.com. 
Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.